Well, a lot of people are very, very worried about the future, aren't they? You only have to look at our children. Back in 2019, as I was researching the phenomenon that is climate anxiety, there were something like 1.6 million school-age protesters in 125 countries demanding that action would be taken to combat climate change, let alone lawsuits taken out against governments for failing to do enough. And of course, the anxiety is increased when people like David Attenborough say, if we don't take action, the collapse of our civilizations and the extinction of much of the natural world is on the horizon. That is serious stuff. Now, of course, climate change is a bit of a controversial subject for some people, uh, but the point is, for many, it is extremely anxiety-producing as they consider their future. And whether or not it does that for you, I'm sure there's something else that can induce anxiety for you as you think about the future. You may not be worried about the climate like many of our young are, but what about the growing threat of nuclear war between the United States and Russia as Ukraine accidentally throws missiles into neighbouring NATO countries? Or China overtaking the shores of Taiwan and uh, the seeming response that that would bring from us and our allies. Might not be the climate that gives you anxiety, might be war. And if you're not someone who lives in the global military political space and therefore get anxiety about these things, and you're not someone who's particularly worried about climate change, then maybe it's just money because things are expensive, aren't they? They're getting more expensive. And things are, are costing more than we have and our wages are not keeping up. And like, it's not just more expensive to buy like milk and bread and groceries to have a good Christmas. What about a house? Try to buy a house? And if you've got one and you're fine, what about your kids' houses? How are they gonna buy a house? How are they going to survive? How are they going to get ahead? And if it's not that, then I'm sure there's something else a little bit anxiety-producing when it comes to the future. In fact, many would say that there is no hope to be had. How can we look to the future with hope? especially when apparently the solutions to all of those problems are in the hands of politicians. From where does hope come? Well, that's what Advent is about. It's about remembering that just as Jesus came into the world on that first Christmas night, so he will come again to bring peace and harmony perfection, justice, a new heavens and a new earth, free from climate change, free from war, free from greed. That is a hopeful future.
Before we look at our reading today from Isaiah chapter 2 and consider the promises of God and and fill our hearts with hope, uh, I just want to remind you of, uh, uh, very briefly, of the Bible's storyline up until this point in Isaiah. And particularly with a focus on those very uh, key and important opening chapters of the Bible in the book of Genesis. After humanity sins... After God makes the world, sorry, I'll start at the very start. Uh, After God makes the world in Genesis 1 and 2, we know in Genesis 3 that humanity sins. And the consequences of that work themselves out over the next sort of seven chapters or so before God eventually breaks into this world of increasing and cascading sin and makes a specific promise to a specific man about bringing blessing to the world, about bringing hope to the world. He says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, the Lord, uh, Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make, make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all people on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham. I'm going to make you the vessel through which I bring my blessing to the world, through which uh, people will live back in right relationship with me under my rule and reign in the garden again. And that promise works its way out throughout the pages of the Old Testament. Uh, And then ultimately we see how they find their fulfilment in Jesus in the New and Isaiah, in the middle of the Old Testament, takes these promises of Abraham, to Abraham by God, the Abrahamic blessing, and he finds their expressed fulfilment in the city of Jerusalem, as we heard when Kate read to us from chapter 2 of Isaiah. That is, the promises that God has made to Abraham about being a blessing, about being a nation, about being a blessing to the world, these for Isaiah in this prophecy are found in the city of God. Isaiah looks forward to a time when the city of God will be what it should be, not what it is. Isaiah looks forward to a time when God's people live in God's city under God's rule and reign and there's no sin to get in the way. And Isaiah gives the people a picture of what that's going to look like when finally God makes everything right and he establishes his perfect rule and reign. Verse 2 of chapter 2, In the last days the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and the nations will stream to it. Has anyone ever been to Nepal or one of those high mountainous countries? Uh, when, When you go there... Uh, what you'll see is whenever you get to the top of a high mountain, well, there's another high mountain, but the ones that people can get up to relatively easily have got temples on top of them. Uh, and and uh, if they can't get a temple, then they'll often have prayer flags on top of them because mountains are where the gods live. It's the same, yeah, this worldview was prevalent uh, in Isaiah's time. 
And so when he prophesies that the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of mountains, he's making an allegoric statement, isn't he? What he's saying is that God will be the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God above all other gods. He will reign supreme over all the other hills, all the other gods, and all the people are not going to go up this hill and that hill. They're going to go to the mountain of the Lord to worship him. And the purpose and the centre of their worship will be a dedication to God's rule and reign, his word, his laws, verse 3. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. God will be at the centre of the world All the nations will come to his city and they'll worship him and they'll uh, delight in his rule and reign through his law, through his word. And it will be wonderful. And then as the nations gather and as God's law flows out from the city of God into all the nations, bringing blessing, God's justice will be perfectly established in the world. Verse 4, he will judge between the nations and will settle the disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Instead of settling our disputes by buying the biggest bombs, we'll turn our attention to cultivating the garden. A picture of justice for the earth justice for mankind it's a picture of a perfect life with God at the center people living under his rule and reign it's a picture of the curse of the garden undone as people now turn their minds to to tending it and it's a wonderful picture a hope filled picture especially for us in 2022. But how do we get there? How does it come about? Well, Isaiah, looking forward to this perfect picture that he paints in verses 2 to 4, then turns to the the people he's addressing. He says in verse 5, Come, descendants of Jacob, Let us walk in the light of the Lord. As he paints the picture of this wonderful future where God is at the centre and all nations gather to worship him and his justice is established through his word perfectly and people stop fighting each other and they just get on with with gardening. As he paints this wonderful picture of what life will be like when God uh, is in charge perfectly... And sin is no more, he says, we can experience some of that now. And we'll get there by walking in the light of the Lord, by following God's decrees, by living into the blessing that God has given to us. As God's people look forward, they're encouraged to live for God as they wait for his perfect future. And the second half of the chapter, which I didn't read, 
paints the picture of what happens if we don't walk in the light of the Lord, if we don't listen to God's words. Instead of this glorious future that Isaiah opens the chapter with, we have a future of separation. God abandons his people in verse 6. And so they find themselves not brought high to the mountain of God, but in verse 9, brought low and humbled. And Isaiah warns that their sin will uh, be, it will be their sin and their failure to acknowledge God that causes this. And in fact, Isaiah warns us that not only does our sin separate us from God, but it makes us think we're the centre of everything. You see that working out in verses, starting in verse 12. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. And then skipping to verse 17. The arrogance of man will be brought low, and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols will totally disappear. God will deal with those who have not bowed the knee and followed his ways. Isaiah says he will bring down the arrogant and the proud and all we worship instead of him. And this is a good thing. Often we hear these words and we say, this is bad. This sounds bad to me. I don't like the idea of God doing this. But actually, God's good judgment and his uh, bringing of justice to the world is cleansing. Let me take you back into chapter 1 of Isaiah, just before Isaiah paints that beautiful picture in the opening verses, where we read of God's judgment as cleansing and purifying. I will turn my hand, verse 25, chapter 1, I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. God's judgment is like the refining fire, the fire that is used to make gold or silver more pure. So God's judgment brings refinement and purity to his people. Without the judgment of God, we never get to Zion. We never get to the mountain of God. We never get to enjoy his perfect rule and reign. And to avoid God's cleansing fire from consuming us, we need to continue to listen to his word and walk in the light. And of course, we know what that means as Christians who live this side of the first coming of Christ. At Christmas, we remember, as the Apostle John tells us in his gospel, John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in verse 9 of that same chapter, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. To avoid 
the fires of God's judgment and to live in the hope of, of, of the heavenly Jerusalem, of the, of the future new heavens and new earth, we come to Jesus, the word of God, the light of God. In him and through him, God is bringing about his perfect plans to have all his promises fulfilled. And we are looking forward to a time when that will be completed. Jesus comes at Christmas and grows into a man and at Easter wins a victory over sin and Satan and death. And yet we still experience sin and Satan and death. But now we know that those things are defeated, that they don't have the final say because sin is forgiven through Christ. Satan is defeated on the cross and the future is certain when he returns. And as Christians, we look forward with the people of every generation to the day where God's blessings are fully realised. The Apostle John again, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, paints a picture similar to the one Isaiah paints of a time when, as Jesus returns, God's people are able to worship him perfectly in the, in the new heavens and the new earth, in the new city of God. He says, chapter 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth had passed away. And I heard a loud voice from the throne uh, saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. A beautiful picture, isn't it, of the future, of the hope. A picture that brings to mind many Old Testament prophecies like the one we read in Isaiah chapter 2. And yet what struck me as I was uh, turning to Revelation 21 and 22, and I encourage you to have a, have a look at it yourself, but as you're reading these beautiful words, words that probably sound very familiar to you, no more death or mourning or crying or pain, no more tears, can't wait to get there. But as you read this beautiful picture, uh, the, 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 from about first chapter 20 of Revelation, the last three chapters are replete with warnings. Just like Isaiah's vision, in fact, is surrounded by warning. The judgment of God will come like a refining fire for those who do not walk in the light of God. And so Revelation also, with its picture of perfection, reminds people not to become defined by sinful practice. Eternity is only for those who are holy and the only way to be holy is to come to the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.30 tells us this, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, our holiness and our redemption. We don't avoid the refining fire of judgment ourselves. 
God does it for us in Christ. And those whom God refines, he refines through the work of the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's God-inspired holiness through Jesus. So how do we have hope? We have hope at Advent by looking forward. Looking forward to a time when there's no more rumours of war or threats of war or actual war. We look forward to a time when there's no more rubbish in the oceans or warming of the planet. We look forward to a time of complete and perfect holiness and peace, of justice, perfect justice. We look forward to a time of being in God's presence perfectly and forever. Every now and again in the life of a Christian, you have, a, you have moments where you feel particularly connected to God. I wonder if you've had one of those moments in your life, maybe in a prayer time, in a church service. They don't happen all the time, but when they do, gosh, they're marvellous. They do happen all the time in the future, though. And that will be marvellous indeed. But what we need to remember is that we need God's help. We need God to purify us. Otherwise, we'll be caught up in the judgment. And God has sent his son Jesus in order that we can be pure in him. We can enjoy eternity with him. And this is good news. It's wonderful news. I hope it gives you hope. I hope it relieves your anxieties about the future in this life, in the here and now. And while we can enjoy this message of hope, this picture of a beautiful time in the future when God's rule and reign is perfectly established, when Jesus returns, let us also remember that that will come after judgment. And as we've just finished three weeks on evangelism, let's remind ourselves that we're not just evangelising for more bums on seats in church. We're not just evangelising um, because uh, it'll help people uh, have all that they have in this world plus Jesus. We're telling people the good news about Jesus so that they'll be with us in eternity and that they'll escape the powerful fires of God. Sounds a little bit fire and brimstone, doesn't it? But that's in the Bible. It's like it's unfortunate, but that's what the Bible says. Without Christ... There is no holiness, and without holiness, there is only judgment. There is no hope. You know, worse than the climate change, worse than a war with China, 
worse than nuclear war between Russia and the United States, worse than having no money, worse than your children having nowhere to live? The judgment of God. Much worse. Inescapable. Without Jesus, there is no hope. But with Jesus, there is a future you can only dream about. We need Jesus. Our friends need Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus. Our enemies need Jesus. Not just so they can enjoy a better life now, but so they can enjoy an eternity with God when he comes to judge the living and the dead. If you're captivated by that vision of God's mountain, all the nations worshipping God in perfect peace and justice established on the, on the lands, that vision is captivating to you. If that's a better vision of the future than one you've heard before, then the question simply is this, are you walking in the light? As Isaiah encourages us, and of course as we know now that Jesus has come, what that means is, have we trusted the light of the world? Have we trusted Jesus? Better question, have you? For it is only through him you can be made holy. It is only through him you can have future, a future hope. So if you want to know more about Jesus and about how he gives you hope for the future, let me encourage you to come and see me after the service and we can talk about that. Mm -hmm.